Good afternoon. My name is John Herbst, and I am the director of the Dinu Patrizio Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. We have a somewhat different event for you this afternoon, and thank you for coming. It's nice to see we have a good-sized crowd. Uh, the title of today's event is Connecting Ukraine's Past and Present from Holodomor to the War in the Donbass. And I say this is a little bit unusual of an event for the Atlantic Council, because this is kind of a, a deeper dive than usual into history. Not that we ignore history. Of course, we don't. It's very important to understand the past, understand where we are today. But we spend a little bit more time on the historical dimension today than on the current dimension. And it's important because this historical dimension has gotten short shrift um, ever since the awful events of the Holodomor in the early 1930s. We have a, a wonderful panel for you today. Uh, I don't think I need to name all of them. You have already of them. You have here on the bios of each. Um, give you people well well prepared um, to discuss this this very serious topic. Let me just say two more things. One, uh, this event is timed in part to something very unusual. Uh, a full length regular movie, um, Bitter Harvest on the Holodomor is coming to a theater near you later this week. And you may have seen advertising for this on TV over the weekend. I've seen it. In fact, I've seen it more than once. It's well worth seeing. It keeps your attention on a very, very difficult subject. But it's not a documentary. It's a full-length feature film, which seems to be the way to catch people's attentions in this post-modernist age. Second thing it is, and I'm proud to say I did not need to be reminded, um, you can follow us at hashtag Future Ukraine. And with that, um, I think I'm done. I'll just introduce Timothy Fairbank, who's a senior fellow, non-resident senior fellow at our center, who will be moderating today's discussion. Tim, and ladies and gentlemen. Oh, sorry, the trailer first. Excuse me, I, I knew I'd make a mistake. born in a country where anything was possible. We celebrated simple freedoms to live and to love. Marry me. But there have always been those who would try to take our freedom. Ukraine must be taught to bow to our will. Without its vast harvest of grain, Russia cannot exist. This would mean the death of millions. Who in the world will know? They're coming! Bolsheviks! Your land all belong to the state. I have seen people left to die. This is not a famine. This is starvation. I must fight for my country. Resistance is strong and spreading. Close the borders, keep them in. We must save ourselves or die. You know that I'll always be yours. Trust me, I will make it home to you. How many lives is this war worth? If I can save one life, that's enough for me. We must continue the resistance. Freedom! Freedom! To Ukraine! 
someone to live for gives me courage. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we have a great panel today to discuss Ukraine, past and present. I uh, can't think of a, a better group to, to discuss this today. Uh, well, before we begin with, with some questions that I'll, that I'll moderate, I'll introduce the, the full panel. Uh, as you know, we have uh, Ambassador John Herbst. John's the director of the Eurasia Center here at the Atlantic Council. He's also the former US ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, next, we have Nadia McConnell. Nadia is the president of the U.S.-Ukraine Foundation. To her left is Naftali Rivkin. Naftali is a research fellow at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation. And last but not least, we have Michael Savkiu. Michael is the director of the Ukraine National Information Service, which is part of the Ukrainian Congress Committee of America. He's also the chair of the U.S. Holodomir Committee. And Michael, if, if you don't mind, I'll start with you and then we'll work our way back. Um, very little is known um, to the outside world and even in Eastern Europe of the events of Holodomor. Can you, can you talk about this, this lack of information and, and lack of understanding, specifically uh, what many would, be, would describe as the Soviet disinformation campaign, which during 1932, 1933, and really since mm -hmm. then? Great, absolutely, thank you. Um, first, I would like to thank the Atlanta Council for hosting this event. It is not every day that we get a group together such as this of experts and of, of audience participants that can talk about the Holodomor. The Holodomor is one of the least known atrocities in the world. Frankly speaking, we from the Ukrainian American community call it a genocide. And we call it a genocide because even the person that termed the coin genocide, Raphael Lemkin, um, a, a Ukrainian at the United Nations, had used the Holodomor as an example of what true genocide is. I look at this, and I look at this in the perspective of what happened nearly 85 years ago in Ukraine, and frankly speaking, what is happening right now. The two are parallel, but looking at it, the two are quite similar. <clears throat> as well. And I'd like to begin with a quote, a quote from a French writer, an aristocrat, who in the mid-1800s used to travel quite often to Russia and had an opportunity to meet the czars, uh, various czars, had opportunity to meet various noblemen, and also into the, he went into the countryside. And in his book, which is Letters from Russia, French writer Marquis de Custine quotes a Russian civil servant proudly proclaiming the following, and I quote, Russia lies, denies the facts, makes war on the evidence, and wins. That, I think, is the perspective of what we're dealing with right now. Whether this book 
letters from Russia written nearly 175 years ago, the Holodomor, which happened 85 years ago, and the incidents that are happening right now in eastern Ukraine and Crimea shows that Russia lies and Russia makes war on the facts. Now, this is not necessarily a historical lesson that I'd like to give you today. What I'd like to give you is a philosophical notion of what is happening in that area and what is emanating from Moscow. For Moscow, it's not so much a territorial grab of Ukraine. Whether it was during the Soviet Union times of the 1920s or even right now in the, in the early 2000s, what it is, it's, a, it's an informational war. It's attraction as to what you can get out there for the people to believe and at the same time do as much of the unfortunate to various societies as possible. So it's a, it's a matter of principle. It's a matter of democratic principles versus it's a matter of authoritarianism, dictatorship, and how you wield power. Now, it's, it's, it's quite interesting that the Soviets denied the Holodomor for the longest of times. Frankly speaking, they denied it till about the mid-1980s when we, in the greater Ukrainian diaspora, whether in the United States or throughout the world, started speaking more and more about it. And there was some resonance associated with it. There was some traction associated with it. Members of Congress, presidents of the United States issued their particular statements about the Holodomor. Frankly speaking, it culminated in 2008 with a statement by President George W. Bush that said that the Holodomor was a, quote, crime against humanity. So the Soviets having denied it for so long and only after a lot of the information started trickling out after the dissolution of the Soviet Union in 1991, did they even acknowledge that the Holodomor happened. It's the same thing fast forward 85 years, ladies and gentlemen. Fast forward 85 years from the Holodomor to what is happening right now in eastern Ukraine and Crimea. If you remember of March of 2014, nearly three years to the date, that the Russians started invading Crimea with quote-unquote little green men, that Putin obviously said there is no such thing as little green men in Ukraine. That obviously had, had no notion that this was being done in an organized fashion in terms of the illegal annexation of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea in, the Ukraine, in Ukraine. So this is the, 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 the point of the story. And what we see is not so much about how history repeats itself, because unfortunately it does repeat itself, but how we have to tackle those historical burdens of not being silent. I had a wonderful opportunity to see a premiere of the film last week, Bitter Harvest, which you just saw a, a, just a very short trailer. The movie is poignant. The movie is riveting. The movie encaptures your heart and your soul because it is about a love story in the dire circumstances of a forced famine in Ukraine. But I picked up one amazing quote from that particular movie. And the quote came from a Soviet commissar saying that reality is the enemy. If reality is the enemy, how do we fight against who is the enemy? Is reality the true enemy? Or obviously is the dis disinformation that is being strewn about the enemy. And this is what I'd like to leave you. I'd like to leave you 
with certain instances of what are happening in today's world. Unfortunately, there are a lot is happening, a lot, of, a lot is being said in terms of fake news, a lot is being said in terms of facts, how to look at these particular facts. The facts are there, ladies and gentlemen. The facts have always been there 85 years ago. The facts were there nearly 175 years ago when the French writer and aristocrat traveled throughout Russia. The facts are all there. In 1932-33, there were journalists that actually were embedded in Ukraine that did get out the story. It is unfortunate that a lot of their writing did not receive the prominence of one particular writer for the New York Times, the name of which Walter Durante, has a Pulitzer Prize within the New York Times building. These are all the attributes what we have to deal with in today's world. But in today's world, since we know a lot of the facts, we, we know a lot of the information that is already strewn about, it is our opportunity now to make sure that that doesn't repeat itself. It's not about the history. The history is necessary. It's about the perception. And the perception that is being made, unfortunately, from Russia, whether it was Tsarist Russia, whether it was the Soviet Union and Communist Russia, or whether it is today's Russian Federation, it's that perception of what is reality. And in the movie, if reality is the enemy, then that is what we have to deal with. But how do you combat that? How do you combat this disinformation that is happening? There are many ways. First and foremost, if the example of MH17 in July of 2014, the facts are out there. More needs to be done. More investigations, more trials, frankly speaking, have to be brought. Other instances in terms of combating this, the disinformation is the movie itself. The movie itself combats all types of disinformation stemming from Moscow. The Holodomor Memorial, which we dedicated in November of 2015, prominent location in Washington, D.C., on the corner of Massachusetts Avenue and North Capitol Street, whereas the tip you can see the U.S. Capitol. It's very important to have these types of instances. Curriculum within our high school social studies programs. I went through the high school systems here in the United States, and frankly speaking, if I, as a Ukrainian-American, didn't raise the issues of the Holodomor, unfortunately, I don't think much would have been said. And I have any, even have an example in my college, my college courses of Russian history from the mid-1800s to the uh, mid-1900s, going from Tsarist Russia to, to Communist Russia or the Soviet Union, and talking about Lenin and Stalin's five-year plans, whereas collectivization was mentioned, but not necessarily in the capacity of what it meant for the starving of nearly five, seven, 10 million people in Ukraine. This is what we need to do. We need to bring forth the facts. We need to make sure that this is evident. And as I had mentioned earlier, one of the greatest examples of Holodomor in terms of its debunking of the information from the Russian Federation is recognizing it as its true genocide. I leave you with one particular quote as well. And this is a quote from Desmond Tutu. This is a quote about what should inspire us to work in the future and to debunk a lot of this misinformation and a lot of this propaganda. 
It is a quote as follows. If you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And I think those are poignant words that we need to remember as we examine a little bit more of the whole of in this panel discussion, and if you have the unique opportunity of watching the film Bitter Harvest. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Naftali, following up with what Michael mm -hmm. talked about, you've done a lot of research uh, regarding how reporters and politicians misrepresented the events in the early 1930s. Can you talk about this a little bit more and in, in how this misrep misrepresentation of the facts um, affected past events, but also what's going on currently in Ukraine, and For also sure. how, how that affects uh, the culture of the society? Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, first of all, thank you, Tim and, and Michael. And I apologize to the room. I picked the worst day to get a cold. Um, so I don't know how it's going to sound, my voice coming through the mic. Um, I wanted to pick up on something Michael just said about high school curricula. And it's important to note that the way we talk about history, the way the words that we use here in Ukraine and in Russia have an impact on younger generations. Um, I was sifting through some Russian high school textbooks. Um, and I, I found an example of how Russian children are taught about, well, basic history, like the famine in Ukraine, 1932-33. So this is a quote from a textbook published in Russia in 2008, uh, the author uh, by the name of Danilov. It says, the famine was a result of weather conditions as well as the incompleteness of collectivization processes. In parentheses, collective farms were not yet able to provide the required level of production of bread, while the kulaks, the wealthy farmers, were liquidated as a social class and did not participate in the production. Um, so the, the, this is just to, to substantiate your point further, that the disinformation um, has an impact in the way we educate our children here and in Russia. And I also wanted to pick up on something you mentioned about Walter Durante. Uh, how many people here know who Walter Durante is? I, I think a sizable portion of the room. For those of you who don't know who he is, uh, he was the New York Times correspondent in Moscow from 1917 to, I believe he was the bureau chief until 34 and then 34, 35, and then he stayed on as a reporter. Um, and he won a Pulitzer for a series of 11 articles, partially covering the Holodomor in Ukraine. Um, and for those of you who don't think he deserves a Pulitzer, which I do not, um, you may change your mind because he may deserve a Pulitzer for the Orwellian linguistic gymnastics in his article, he writes simply, there is no actual starvation, but there is widespread mortality from diseases due to malnutrition. <laughs> now, Durante's an easy target, and we could, as many do, dismiss him as a liar. Um, but Durante, unfortunately, was not an outlier at the time. Famous people, intelligent people, uh, like George Bernard Shaw, H.G. Wells, uh, French Prime Minister Edouard Dariot, were all fooled um, by Russia's propaganda campaign during the Holodomor. Even Arthur Kessler, <clears throat> that's the cold. <coughs> Even Arthur Kessler, 
author of Darkness at Noon, which I think is one of the best books on communism ever written, um, unfortunately dismissed the dying Ukrainians as, quote, enemies of the people who preferred begging to work. So my question is why? Why the shameless lying, the, the almost hilarious doublespeak, the complete denial of reality? Who do these people think they're fooling? As always, George Orwell holds the key to the mind that can believe freedom is slavery and ignorance is strength. In 1945, Orwell wrote, it was considered equally proper to publicize famines when they happened in India and to conceal them when they happened in the Ukraine. And if this was true before the war, the intellectual atmosphere is certainly no better now. And I think now extends to 2017. Orwell gets to the heart of the matter. It's not that the Holodomor deniers were fools, although many of them were fooled by Russia's disinformation campaign, um, which, for example, removed starving orphans from the street before the arrival of the French prime minister. It's that it is fashionable in this long 20th century of Ukrainian history, um, from the Holodomor to the war in Donbass, to create false equivalence between the common tragedies of the human condition and the deliberate, systematic, and malicious aggression of the Russian regime. I want to share with you a quote from another journalist, a good guy this time. Gareth Jones was the journalist who originally broke the story of the Holodomor. He interviewed so Soviet Foreign Minister Maxim Litvinov in 1933. And in that interview, Litvinov took a line that we have heard from many Russian foreign ministers since. He said, flat out, well, there is no famine, which of course is a blatant lie. But then he tailored and amended his statement a little bit. He said, you must take a longer view. The present hunger is temporary. In writing books, you must have a longer view. It would be difficult to describe it as hunger. Notice the sentence construction. There are no active verbs. My college English professor would be appalled. He always used to ask me, who is doing what to whom? Hunger and famine occur all over the world all the time. In India, for example, like Orwell said. And Litvinov is trying to say that the famine in Ukraine, which he says wasn't really a famine, just occurred without any cause or any effect necessarily. Similarly, over the past week or so, Russian officials have been asking Ukraine to reconsider its economic sanctions on Donbass and, quote, stop the attack on Donbass, as if the conflict in Donbass simply occurred in a vacuum. The Russian regime and many people who don't know better talk about the Holodomor as one famine amongst many in a year that killed millions of people. Similarly, the Russian regime and others who don't know better talk about Donbass as a semi-frozen conflict that seems to be symptomatic of 2017. Nobody's at fault, they seem to say. Nobody's getting hurt, they seem to believe. That's just the way the world is these days, they want us to think. It's the so-called long view that Soviet Foreign Minister Litvinov wanted us to take. Thank you. Nadia, we've, it seems like there's a, there's a pattern here, it, it, <laughs> um, sort of a, a struggle for the truth. And What's left to say? Yeah. Uh, can you talk about why this is, and, and are there similarities between the 1930s and today? Well, definitely. I, I guess I'd like to um, divide my remarks uh, into two parts. Uh, looking back what happened then and 
actually looking at various issues regarding Ukraine, be it Chernobyl, the millennia of Christianity, or the war in there, there are just parallels that are just so striking. Uh, first, I want to talk about the parallels here in the United States. As Michael said, the first official recognition of the famine occurred in the mid-'80s. We began to, uh, to commemorate the 50th anniversary uh, of the famine. So first there were resolutions to commemorate the famine, and then there was the resolution to uh, have the commission. The United States was the first government in the world to officially recognize that the, that the famine, the whole of the took place. Uh, several of us uh, old timers uh, had a little group. Actually, we called ourselves the caucus, Ukraine caucus, and our headquarters were in the monocle. <laughs> and we met, and one of them was uh, Matsuzahelis, because she worked for the National Science Foundation, and she was detailed to Senator Hollings. So guess who sponsored the resolution on the famine in the Senate? <laughs> it was Senator Hollings. So that was the, uh, the beginning of this campaign. Uh, to officially recognize. And there were some interesting things that happened. We tried to get a hearing on the Senate side, and uh, Senator Luger, chairman of the Foreign Relations, uh, didn't want to do it. So we went to see uh, Senator Jesse Helms. Now, old timers will remember him as being quite the, the rebel, you could say. And he was chair of the Agriculture Committee. And so he claimed that he had jurisdiction over this topic because the Holdemar had to do with collectivization and uh, you know, the, uh, in agriculture. So uh, this sort of interesting little thing. But uh, so this was the beginning of pressing for uh, recognition. And I, besides thanking the Atlantic Council for organizing this event, I want to thank the, the people who put together this film. Because I think this film represents a milestone in the world recognizing mm -hmm this event. When you have an event like this now being uh, introduced into the popular culture, be it film or books, I think this is another is a step towards more widely uh, people uh, recognizing it and accepting uh, the historical fact of this. Now, in the, when we were doing this resolution, uh, we thought we were uncovering sort of the world for the Congress. Um, let me back up. This year, we are actually celebrating 100 years of Congress supporting the people of, of Ukraine. One of the things we discovered was that actually in 1934, Hamilton Fish III of New York introduced a resolution in regards to the famine. So the world knew, people knew. And even in Washington, people do. Now, uh, we had the pleasure of interviewing him. Uh, he was already in his uh, mid-90s, and he ranted and raved about uh, President Roosevelt. Uh, because at that time, that was the time when we in the United States wanted to recognize Russia. So geopolitics got in the way of the Congress being able to officially recognize what was taking place. 
Does anybody see parallels to today? So actually, if we look at the history, Congress has been always in the forefront on these kind of issues in relations uh, to, to Ukraine. And throughout history, there have been different reasons why presidents may not have wanted to uh, support uh, or endorse certain positions. So it seems like history continues. Now, it's, it's already been somewhat discussed about um, the disinformation. Uh, I, I'm going to call it the Kremlin playbook, which is consistent from then till now. The only thing that changes are the methods because of advances in technology and resources. And I divide it into what people have already said. Uh, first, it's the deny and cover up. Whether it was the Holodomor, whether it was Chernobyl, whether it was the millennium of Christianity, you name it, that's the first step. And then you have the propaganda, which provides an alternative narrative to substitute for the truth. And then we have fake news. And the biggest example of that was Walter Duranty. I think this is an interesting case study about his role that he played. It was much more than just writing articles to cover up what was going on. He was an integral part of promoting the Soviet position. Uh, looking, him, uh, looking at Walter Duranty, I, uh, there was an interesting quote, since everybody's quoting. In November of 33, after there had been some sentence, uh, negotiations about the recognition of, of Russia, there was a dinner at the Waldorf Astoria hosted by the Soviet foreign minister. And one of the participants uh, who wrote about that said, during the di dinner, as people were being introduced, there was mild applause. But when Walter Duranty was introduced, it was thunderous applause. And this is the quote. One quite got the impression that America, in a spasm of discernment, was recognizing both Russia and Walter Duranty. Now, the other part of the playbook is to identify people of stature and, and recognized status who are either paid experts or, as Stalin defined them, useful idiots. And sometimes it's hard to figure out where, in which category uh, people fit. I went to the Ukrainian Weekly Archives uh, for 1983, and I pulled out an article, not about the whole of the mod, but actually about uh, Reverend Graham attending a peace conference in Moscow in 1983. The reason I pulled it out, because can you think of another person who is so respected, an American icon, than Reverend Graham, spiritual advisor to many presidents, 
respected by people of all faiths. I mean, I don't think there's anybody who would attack uh, Reverend Graham. So when he goes to Moscow and says he sees no signs of religious persecution, despite the fact that he visited with six uh, Pentecostal uh, believers from Siberia who had been living in the US Embassy for five years. He then went on to say things like, he went to several Orthodox churches and they were packed, something that he would not see in Charlotte, North Carolina, his home. And the final one, which was really uh, hard to read when talking about food shortages, he said, I had wonderful meals, caviar. In America, only the very rich can afford caviar. Why, I'm not picking on Reverend Graham, but I am trying to illustrate that when you have someone of this stature who, for whatever reason, is promoting a certain line. Now, this was a prelude <coughs> to 1988, when we were commemorating the millennium of Christianity. I happened to be the chair of the government relations for that. And it was political guerrilla warfare, because the Kremlin was trying to seize it as the millennium uh, of Christianity in Russia. So it's very challenging to maneuver through today in terms of different people, and I'm not going to name names, who are in this category. Uh, the final step is to vilify and attack those who speak the truth. <clears throat> and it's been already uh, brought up. Garrett Jones was a Welsh journalist who bravely was undercover um, in Ukraine. He spoke the la uh, language. And he mm -hmm. held a press conference in 1933 talking about the famine. He was denounced, attacked, and just two years later, he was murdered under suspicious uh, circumstances. So unfortunately, I don't think we see much changes in the situation, both in the, the playbook uh, by the Kremlin, or unfortunately, maybe sometimes in terms of politics here in, in Washington. Thank you. John, if I may ask a very broad and sweeping question, uh, why is it so important today to understand the events of 1932-1933? Uh, let me give seven main points to answer your totally unscripted question. <laughs> uh, one, it's important to understand uh, that the horrors of the communist regime were world-class horrors, among the worst things in human experience. And that the people brutalized under communist rule were all the peoples of the Soviet Union, not to mention the peoples of China and Cambodia, Kampuchea, and so on. Um, I mention that because right now we're talking about one specific, perhaps the most horrific of all the communist crimes, well, maybe I'd say you could say what happened in China during the Cultural Revolution. You could talk about the famine in China in 1961. You could talk about what happened in Kampuchea or Cambodia after um, the communists came to power as comparable. 
but everyone suffered, including the Russians. Point two. Uh, that's point two or three. Uh, Putin's Russia, and this is something we've been talking about since the panel began, is a serious geopolitical problem and a serious human rights problem, but not nearly on the same magnitude as the Soviet Union in either category. Point three, in that period of not quite a decade of possible Russian democracy that followed the fall or the implosion of the Soviet Union, there was real interest in Russia in the horrors of communism. The KGB archives were open. Serious research was done. And we are grateful for the findings of that research. You also had a civic organization in Russia that appeared in the 80s, in the last days of the Soviet Union, Pamits, run by the eminent academician Likhachov, that was interested, and Pamit means memorial, which is interested in memorializing the sufferings, sufferings under communism. Point four. Sadly, this brief Russian flirtation with democracy ended when you had the handoff from President Yeltsin to then Prime Minister Putin, who became President Putin. And Mr. Putin was and is a KGB agent. He says, you never leave the service, except with extreme prejudice, of course. And Putin famously said that the great geopolitical tragedy of the 20th century was not the Holocaust, not the Holodomor, but the fall of the Soviet Union which, of course, is a great misjudgment in moral terms. And Mr. Putin represented the Siloviki, the people who ran the KGB, the Ministry of Defense, and various other, the Ministry of Interior, the power ministries of the Soviet Union. And his becoming president meant the return of this psychological type to power in Russia. And that psychological type greatly enjoyed the geopolitical preeminence of the Soviet Union. And to this day, they feel for that preeminence the way a person whose leg is amputated feels their vanished leg. It's no surprise, therefore, this is point five, that under this regime of Siloviki, of former KGB and KGB Monke types, there is no interest in looking at the horrors of communism. In fact, the to the extent that Putin is an ideologist, and I say to the extent because I don't want to overstate this, his contribution, if you want to use that noun, is to creating a fusion of czarist greatness and Soviet greatness, which is a legacy which the Russian people today have as a point of navigation as they look to the future. And that legacy concludes those ugly aspects discussed by my fellow panelists. Point six. So what is the importance of the Holodomor? One, it's really important in Ukrainian national consciousness. 
for the people of Ukraine to understand what was done to them as a horror of communism, but also in order to quash Ukrainian national feeling at a critical moment in Soviet history is important to understand Ukraine as an independent country. Just as Putin's aggression in Ukraine has solidified a national consciousness, the Holodomor was an earlier pre-conscious recognition, excuse me, a phenomenon of the same kind. I say pre-conscious because only its Ukrainian intellectuals understood it in the 30s. Uh, so that's reason one. But reason two, and this comes more to what I've already said, it is a wedge for understanding more broadly the horrors of communism, not just in Ukraine, but also in Russia, in China, and so on. In that respect, this film, Bitter Harvest, could wind up being a very important cultural event. That's certainly my hope. This leads to a serious conversation about the things that happened in the Soviet Union. And I'm surprised, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm delighted to be the free safety on this panel, because I'm surprised that no one mentioned the actual extent of the horrors of the Holodomor. Uh, if you look at the various writings on it, the number of fatalities ranges from a low of 3 million to a high of 10 or even 11 million. Very large number, very large number. Uh, finally, the Holodomor and the recognition of the extent of the horrors, the recognition of who was responsible, and who was responsible was very much the Politburo of the Soviet Union, is an important geopolitical fact today, and a geopolitical fact of prime importance to the Kremlin for two reasons. Reason one, they understand that a true, under, a true recognition of this horror makes it hard for them to ignore the problems of communism. How can they speak positively about this, about this past of theirs if everyone understands that several million or as many as 10 or 11 million people were starved to death by conscious policy? Therefore, they have attacked Ukraine's commemoration of the Holodomor as an example of extreme Ukrainian nationalism and Russophobic tendencies, which is nonsense. Point two on this, or the second point of point seven, sorry about that, point B, is that this commemoration is also a danger to Putin's authoritarian project in Russia. Because again, the same regime that uh, nuked Litvinov, the same regime that murdered Politkovskaya, that murdered Nemtsov, is a regime that does not want to acknowledge the horrors on an absolutely extraordinary scale of the communist period. And that is ultimately the significance of talking about the Holodomor and this film. I think I've said enough. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you, Thank you for your, your remarks. We have about a little less than 15 minutes left, and so I'd like to ask one more round of questions. And if you could keep your remarks to about two or three minutes before we open it up to the audience. Uh, Michael, if I could go back to you. And you touched on this a little bit, but 
but looking at sort of present day, uh, looking at the disinformation campaign coming out of Moscow, how does that affect events in Ukraine? And, and I'm talking about uh, the illegal annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass. Great question. Um, I think actually John answered a bit of it in terms of looking at it from the national consciousness of, uh, of the Ukrainians. And, and, and frankly speaking, it's, it's a narrative. It's something that's coming out of the Kremlin that um, in terms of this fake news, in terms of a narrative and how the world is supposed to believe this narrative. But obviously, it's a matter of the self-consciousness uh, uh, self of the Ukrainians. And it is harboring now ideas of we as Ukrainians need to stand up for ourselves. Because the world, frankly speaking, is not the same as it was 85 years ago. There are different tactics that are being used in terms of disinformation. Luckily enough, the world is open enough to new technologies in terms of social media and, and so forth that we can actually know some of the truths that are happening right now in Ukraine. And with that, 85 years ago, unfortunately, other than a few journalists, the world did not know. But how do you combat that? There are so many new methods, methodologies that you can combat today's present crisis in Ukraine. Obviously, in terms of the little green men in Crimea, that already we knew as a fact. That was out there. It needs, unfortunately, I think what is necessary is something that happened even 85 years ago. Though the information was known 85 years ago, it, it, it was a matter at times of appeasement. And I'll give you a quote as well. Luckily enough, I have something ready. There was a document compiled by the British Foreign Service. And in this particular document, it says, the truth of the matter is, of course, that we have a certain amount of information about famine conditions in Ukraine. We do not want to make it public, however, because of the Soviet, gov the Soviet government would resent it, and our relations with them would be prejudiced. So that makes, I think, a complete cycle and a complete circle here, that it's a matter of appeasement, and we don't want to appease. We cannot appease right now. And that, I think, is, is in terms of uh, a, a, an answer to your question, it solidifies the Ukrainians and what they are trying to accomplish, what they're trying to do, integrate into Europe. They've been a democracy um, um, before. This is not the first time that Ukraine has had a democratic uh, um, republic and a democratic country, but it's civil society which makes the difference. Frankly speaking, that's one of the things that Stalin wanted to annihilate as much as possible, is that free will and that free thinking from the Ukrainians because he needed, obviously, their land for, for his collectivization and for his industrialization, and he needed to squelch the population. Today, the population won't be squelched, but unfortunately, if there's matters of appeasement on larger global political scales, then the Ukrainians obviously feel that they could be back 85 years ago. Thank you. Naftali, mm -hmm. this has been hit on a little bit, but... Sure. But, but examples of accurate portrayals of, of what's going on in, in that part of the world um, about Russian aggression. You talked about um, textbooks and culture. Can you talk more about that and, and the, the memorial that was constructed a couple of years ago? Can you talk more about the positive developments taking place? Mm, sure. Um, so the, the memorial, Michael can definitely mm. talk about a bit more than I can. Um, I guess where I want to go with this is 
that there has definitely been examples of good cultural memory in the post-Soviet space mm -hmm. that can be followed. Um, in Latvia, for example, one of the first things that they did in Riga after uh, Latvia became independent again was they changed all the street names in the city. People were asking the mayor at the time, um, you know, what, why are you focusing on street names when people need to adapt to an entire new uh, type of lifestyle and people need to eat? And his response was, um, public symbols matter. Your public references and your cultural sphere matters in the way that you um, perceive the world and digest information. So, so that is why the memorial here in DC matters and is a good step in the right direction. That's why the film matters. Um, as, as much as I hope that this panel is seen by a lot of people, I think the film's going to be seen by a lot more. Uh, that is a step in the right direction. In Russia, that step hasn't been taken. Um, if you walk through the street in Moscow, you see hammers and sickles all over the metro stations. Whereas in post-Soviet and Warsaw Pact capitals, the giant monstrous statues of Stalin have been torn down. They, they've been torn down, but actually just moved to a park in Moscow. Um, you, can still, you can still go and see them. Um, and of course, textbooks haven't changed. The way that school children commemorate their own history is unapologetic, even proud. Ukraine, on this cultural sphere, is uh, a country in flux. They have been democratic, and they've been working tirelessly since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, but it's not always easy. People don't want to you know, tear down the statue of Lenin where they celebrated their 13th birthday 50 years ago. Um, it's hard to, to change the smaller villages, the, the textbooks. But that's where the fight has to happen. Thanks. Uh, Nadia, you, you made the point of the, the Russian playbook being the same um, over the decades and generations, how maybe the tools have changed. Uh, how might one or how might organizations or the international community combat this? Um, what programs could be done? How do we raise awareness? Well, I think it's just constant vigilance. I mean, I think you here in the Atlantic Council have done, I think, uh, a fantastic job of of putting out um, you know, credible information. Um, Tim, if I might make some other comments. Sure. That um, one of the things I don't think we have um, come to understand is the impact of the Holodomor on Ukraine society mm -hmm. as such. And I think it's something worthy of maybe analysis uh, as well. And I'm just going to cite three examples. Uh, Ambassador Sherbak, Dr. Sherbak, when he was here one time in a speech, he talked about the fear that still remains within Ukraine because of the Holodomor. Um, and this whole, so when you think about that this fear is still inculculated in society, I think it makes the recent uh, striving of civil society that much more remarkable. Uh, I'm also going to just give you a couple of examples. In 1992, I happened to be in Ukraine with a colleague of mine. And we went to visit her elderly aunt. And of course, we're all euphoric because Ukraine's independent. 
And then she tells me that her aunt is squirreling away dry bread. The notion that Ukraine's independence somehow may threaten them, because that's what collectivation was all about. Uh, there's another documentary film that I'd recommend, The Babushke of Chernobyl, that was done by a, uh, an American woman. It's uh, strangely uplifting, uh, but it's about these women in their 80s and 90s who've gone back to the Chernobyl zone. And of course, a lot is made about the fact that they're living with radiation and there are people coming out, you know, testing them and their water and all of that. But in the film, one of them says, they have no fear about the radiation. The thing that they fear is famine, not having enough food to eat. So this is, I think, has, is really has seeped into society in ways that we have not really, I think, yet uh, come to understand. And on this point, you know, we can talk about uh, the disinformation uh, by the Kremlin. I have to, I think, bring out the fact that the party of regions and President Yanukovych was not ready to uh, recognize this uh, horrific event, even though the most harshest uh, of this Holodomor was suffered in eastern Ukraine. So I think this is something that is, was to me of interest. You know, in 2008, uh, when President Yushchenko was doing a major program to recognize the whole Holodomor, there was a lot of criticism. Uh, I was at a forum in Romania, and some Europeans said, oh, he's wasting his time. He shouldn't be focusing on the whole Holodomor. There are more important things to focus on. And I contradicted to him because I happened to be there. And one of the things I observed uh, was people in eastern Ukraine who had lived through the Holodomor and had never spoken about it were finally feeling free to talk about it. So can you imagine the impact of keeping this inside, the fear and the terror, and what that has, has done to, to, I think, the Ukrainian society? And so I think, again, the fact of what we're seeing in Ukraine's a fight for its own independence and democracy is that much more remarkable given the fact that they have this remembrance of terror. Mm -hmm. Thank you, John. We just have a couple of minutes. Do you have any other remarks you'd like sort of in, in response to what the, the panelists have said? Um, now, I have a reading assignment for the audience. <laughs> uh, if you want to know about the Holodomor, probably the book to read is Bitter Harvest, excuse me, Harvest of Sorrow by Robert Conquest the great British historian. Um, there's another author you should read whose books I can't remember. His name is James Mace, who's written extensively about, about the Holodomor. And finally, uh, everyone was speaking about the uh, concept of useful idiots, Westerners who were doing the Soviet bidding, even if they didn't understand it. Uh, a person to read on this subject, again, I don't remember the name of the book, is Paul Hollander. Holland with an ER. Great book. With that, I'm done. Thank you. Uh, we'd love to open it up uh, for questions from the audience. And if you could please uh, identify yourself and give your affiliation. Uh, yes, sir. We have a mic. Uh, 
thank you so much, uh, Mr. Fairbanks, for organizing this wonderful panel. My name is David Talbot. I uh, work at the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, and I would like to uh, offer it to you uh, as moderator to defer the question uh, where you see it uh, best answered. Uh, one of the things in thinking about the future of Ukraine that didn't um, necessarily come up in the conversation today is um, you know, the future of Ukraine in the context of the new administration. And I would love to hear thoughts about how people who love Ukraine are thinking and strategizing right now uh, for the welfare of their people. Michael? <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> thanks, Davey. Um, interesting question, obviously. And I had a feeling that this would, would, would come up. You know, I think you have to put everything in perspective. And given, given if we're discussing the whole of the modern and, and the events of 85 years ago and the world not knowing, and the quote that I had written, uh, that I had mentioned about the, the, the British Foreign Service uh, diplomats talking about they knew about it, yet they didn't say anything about it, meaning appeasement. Well, we know what appeasement has led to. We know what appeasement led to in 1933. 1933 think, actually, in 1933, the United States recognized the Soviet Union as an entity during the height of, uh, of the famine. We know what happened in the late 1930s because of appeasement and what that led to. So I, I'm looking at this as a, as, as a global context and perspective of the, the, the issue of appeasement for whose sake? We have to know that the facts are out there. We have to know what builds a strong world, and that is democracy, democratic principles, a free and open society. And there is a fight going on right now, not in some obscure part of the world, not in some small little plot of land. This is in the center of Europe, at the heart of Europe's principles is exactly a fight for freedom that is happening. And if we in the West, in particular the United States, don't realize that for exactly what it is, then I'm fearful that that appeasement may lead to other unfortunate aspects in the future. Thank you. John, do you, would you like to respond? Uh, let me answer not so much as someone who loves Ukraine, but as someone who has some affection from Ukraine, but also not some affection for, for Russia, but most importantly, a lot of affection for the United States, all right? Uh, we have a serious geopolitical problem in the leader of the world's second most powerful military, the, the, one of the two great nuclear superpowers, has a revisionist agenda in Europe, wants to weaken NATO, wants to weaken transatlantic ties, wants to have a sphere of influence in his neighborhood. Um, Jim Mattis is correct to say this is the most important danger we face today. We need a policy that recognizes that. Just about everyone chosen by President Trump to a senior national security position seems to understand that. The new national security advisor seems to get it. The Secretary of State seems to get it. The director of the CIA seems to get it. The vice president seems to get it. It's not so clear that the president of the United States seems to get it. Um, that is worrying. Having said that, we've seen in the wake of an inclination on the part of our commander in chief to offer preemptive concessions to the Kremlin, 
resistance coming from within his administration and from Congress. Um, we've seen this cop, this opera bouffe with this Ukrainian peace, this quote-unquote Ukrainian peace plan, as reported by the New York Times. All this is making people here wonder, um, what is up? And I believe as a result of this, we will ultimately see a sound policy, recognizing the dangers of Putin's revisionism and the need to make Putin pay a price for his aggression in Ukraine by supporting the Ukrainian people as they deserve to be supported, especially since they gave up their nuclear weapons in response to assurances from the United States and Britain and France and China, not to mention Russia. And the Russian Federation. Okay. Uh, Naftali first. He oh, okay. jumped in. Oh, sorry. Um, I have two things that I think everyone in this room could do to help Ukraine in the next week, the next month. Concrete things. One, educate our own American kids about the real history of Ukraine. Make sure they are n completely inoculated against whatever you want to call it, fake news, fake facts. It's just incorrect things. Educate them. And two, is assist Ukrainian civil society. Train their journalists, fund their schools, support their democratic <coughs> movements. And then Ukraine will make an educated choice for itself. I would say that we need to have more Americans understand that Ukraine, people of Ukraine are in the front lines, not only just for their uh, independence and sovereignty, but really uh, defending Euro-Atlantic values. As somebody said, unlike Vegas, what happens in Ukraine doesn't just stay in Ukraine. And if you look at what Putin is doing all over, whether it's at the, in the Arctic, whether it's uh, working in, in Europe, so this is not an isolated, Ukraine is not an isolated case, but Ukraine is on the front lines, literally, militarily. And Ukraine is succeeding, and it can succeed if we honor our commitments of the Budapest Memorandum and give them the tools uh, militarily to, to ultimately succeed. So they are fighting our fight. Uh, and that's, I think, the message that we need to, uh, I think, more broadly understand within our own uh, country. Thank you. Another question? Oh. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, my name is Bob One difference, oh, sorry. One difference um, between 85 years ago and today is the role and presence of the Russian Orthodox Church. And, um, the Russian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate, has been supporting the separatist movement in, in Donbass, I believe. Um, they're also a major conduit for Russian disinformation into Ukraine. I was wondering if anybody is, wants to comment on what you see um, going on in Ukraine today, what, what seems to amount to a war within a war between um, the Moscow Patriarchate, the Kiev Patriarchate, and the um, Ukraine Catholic Church. Thank you. Thank you. I would like to take that. Uh, there's no question that the Moscow Patriarchate remains an instrument of Kremlin foreign policy, including in Ukraine. There's also little doubt that the 
uh, Russian Orthodox Church Moscow Patriarchate was used by the Kremlin during the Orange Revolution, as a result of which it lost a substantial number of supporters, believers in Ukraine who switched to the Kiev Patriarchate and to a lesser extent to the Autonomous Orthodox Church of Ukraine. This, this circumstance also worsened um, in the current round, the current crisis between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, the previous metropolitan of the Moscow Patriarchate, Volodymyr in Kiev, understood what happened during the Orange Revolution, and he tried to mitigate um, MP support for uh, the Kremlin at the start of the crisis in, in the winter of 1314. Um, he since passed the scene, and by and large, the MP reverted to type. All this has led to a strengthening of the position of the Kiev Patriarchate and to a much lesser extent of the Autonomous Orthodox Church of Ukraine. The um, Uniate Church doesn't really play in this. Uh, they remain strongly supportive of the Ukrainian national uh, project. But by and large, you haven't seen Orthodox Christians in Ukraine moving to the Uniate Church as a result of the MPs' not very pretty game in country. And well, by the way, one last point. When you've had a period of hierarchs of the Kiev branch of the Moscow Patriarchate pushing back against their leadership in Moscow, that's led to some tensions within the MP uh, between Russia and Ukraine. Can I add something? Yeah. Um, one of the things I'd like to add to this, and, and, and John is correct, obviously, in terms of speaking about the, the, the actual role of the churches. But there's a little bit more um, that I'd like to mention in terms of, I'm sure that you've heard of this term, Ruski Mir. Russian world. This is the, the, the opportunity of Russia to use as, again, as a branch of its foreign policy arm to protect, quote unquote, those Russian speaking citizens, those Russian speaking, the, the Russian speaking population in the near abroad, as they call it. So Ukraine is an example of that, the Baltic states, the Caucasus, and so forth and so on. This is a conscious effort that is being used by the Kremlin and by Moscow on how to stifle resistance as, as, as much as possible. And they use the church in that capacity as well. So the church here is not any type of, the Russian Orthodox Church, Moscow Patriarchate, is not necessarily an altruistic type of church here. They're not out there for your soul, frankly speaking. Um, they are out there, frankly, part and parcel with the, um, with the, the, the foreign policy arm of the Kremlin. And we must understand that. That this is being this this notion of warfare in Ukraine, as as we have alluded to, that Ukraine is literally on the front lines, but it's not just militarily. Whether we can go to Congress and go to the administration and ask for um, uh, weaponry for for Ukraine, it's not just about the military aspect here. There's an informational hybrid war that that's going on as well, and this Ruski Mir is exactly that hybrid warfare, but it has different facets to it. It has facets of cultural, it has facets of religious, has facets of social. You look back in the 19, 1930s, not just during Holodomor times, but even right after, who were some of the first people that Stalin sent to prisons? The intelligentsia, the priests, the priests, the bishops, those that actually led civil society, those that had trust within civil society. St Stalin knew that in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Putin knows that today. Please. Uh, yes, to underscore what John said, the uh, Russian Orthodox Church has always been and continues to be an arm of the state. And we see that playing, continuing to play out 
for instance, even in terms of some of the politics with the Vatican. But I think uh, there's a, the council the, uh, of all Ukrainian churches and religious organizations in Ukraine is a powerful uh, anecdote to this. Uh, it unites uh, all the Protestant churches, the Muslim faiths, the Jewish faiths, the Orthodox and the Catholic. And they are a real active uh, force and body. And so I think uh, they are a enormous um, resource and weapon to, uh, I think, counterbalance what's uh, being done uh, by the Russian Orthodox Church. Naftali? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's important to note here that the, the problem is not the Russian Orthodox Church as such, but the Russian regime's co-opting of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, the, the Catholic Church in Poland, for example, was an incredible force for good in bringing down communism, specifically because uh, Polish identity was so wrapped up with, with the Catholic Church. That was a very important uh, component. But why is the Russian Orthodox Church so successful, or the Russian regime so successful in co-opting the Russian Orthodox Church? I think that's something that needs a little bit more exploration. When the KGB archives were open for a brief time in the 90s, um, it became tragically clear that most of the Russian Orthodox priests were reporting what they heard in confessional to the KGB, um, a tremendous breach of, of ecumenical and personal trust. Um, and another interesting point is that most Russians despite communism's nominal atheism, and today, identify as, as orthodox. It's a part of their uh, identity more so even than necessarily a part of their faith. And the Russian regime is very successful on playing this up, almost in some new segments, hearkening back to the old Tsarist trinity of orthodoxy, orthodoxy autocracy, and nationhood um, as the pillars of what they call Russian civilization. Um, so the Russian regime is successful in this because they play on very old um, identities and, and beliefs. And what needs to be done is to uncouple that. The real people of faith in the Russian church have to take their church back. Thank you. Uh, and I think you have the next question. Can we get a microphone over here? Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of WI. UU in Kiev, Ukraine. Uh, I'd like to tie some, all these points to me together, starting with Michael, when your first statement was uh, the French quote in the 18, early 1800s. And uh, basically what we're seeing about how facts are manipulated <coughs> to a particular end to their, to their win. And all the way right now to what we're experiencing at this very moment. We'll all walk out, check the news, and we're going to see some more of the fake news, the manipulation of the news, the propaganda. Everything that is being cranked out is becoming more and more difficult to know what's coming forward that's clear and accurate versus what's tainted and so on. Um, that being said, what we're dealing with today is a very complex situation. It's, it's Ukraine. It's what's happened in Ukraine. It's the documentation which will, of Holodomor, which will brings 
past history to light and factually. And now we're facing the effects of Russia's aggression in Ukraine being practiced to the extent that it's been able to be exported here in our society in a different way, again, through information, manipulation, cyber, secure, cyber issues. So how would you like to respond to how we're going to be able to aggressively bring this forward to the American public to understand how important this is in Ukraine because Ukraine is us? Thank you. Uh, Michael, do you want to start with you and we'll work our way down? Sure. Um, thank you for the question. It's, it, 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 it's a complex answer. I don't think there's a, a, an easy fix to any of this. I'd like to begin in terms of some of the things that have happened already, some positive things that have happened already, and how we as an American society can, can build upon that. Last year, within the National Defense Authorization Act, there was a, the, 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 the bill. There was an amendment which added $80 million for the formation of a center which would gather information. This, was, this is to be within the State Department. To gather information, this is the Portman uh, Murphy Disinformation Act. To gather information about the disinformation that is coming from Russia. And to use that and to, to leverage all of that disinformation that's coming and come up with the true narrative as compared to, obviously, Putin's narrative and so forth. The issue is not so much even here in the United States of distributing that true narrative. Frankly speaking, it's going back to Ukraine or going back to the quote-unquote near abroad and distributing that information back there. That, I think, is one of the first keys to our success, is that it has to start on a local civil society type basis in Ukraine. If they get the information from us on how to combat that information, working together in unison with other Western democracies, I think that's one of the first plugs that we, can, that, that we need to build upon. A second aspect is obviously even here what some of my colleagues on, on the panel have alluded to. We need to get the truth out there as much as possible, meaning it needs to start within curriculum in, in, in our high schools, not just about Holodomor, but, but about everything in general. There's this geostrategic context to all of this. This, uh, again, is not just about Ukraine. We're discussing the issues 85 years ago of Holodomor and how that relates to right now. But again, what happened 85 years ago um, and, and what is happening now, what is happening now, we can actually do something about it. And the, the bringing this to, to American society, having more discussions such as this, I think is uniquely an opportune way to bring forth a little bit more of that, uh, uh, combating that narrative, that disinformation. It's, it's, it's much more difficult sometimes now, unfortunately, to deal with this, because what's happening in terms of this Ruski Mir, which I had mentioned earlier, it's weaponizing information. It's a very hard concept to understand weaponizing information. You think of information as facts, and you build your case upon those facts but it's actually weaponizing it. It's making it into its own beast, so to say. And I think that's where our, our um, work lies ahead of us. Let's begin in these small steps. Let's begin with, with civil society in the greater um, European uh, venue and theater. And then obviously we need to do in parallel, we need to do the same thing here in the United States. 
education, like Michael mentioned, is, is the key. And if I could be so bold as to add to your reading list, that's um, already very useful. Um, one of my favorite books on communism is Witness by Whitaker Chambers. Oh, yeah. In the introduction to the book where uh, Chambers is sitting in his farmhouse in New Jersey writing the letter to his children, uh, he writes a line that I, I always remember. He goes, I want to inoculate you against communism before you ever learn the word. It's, it's a belief in truth as an antidote to untruth, learning the truth before you ever even learn the untruths. So let's amend that for, for 2017. Let's inoculate our children against Russian disinformation <laughs> before they ever even learn the term. Well, as everybody has noted, this is an enormously complex uh, situation because the amount of resources that the Kremlin has devoted to this disinformation mm -hmm. is enormous. And I don't think we need to necessarily match dollar for dollar uh, their resources, but I do think that we need to be strategic about it. And while I have some hope for whatever program could be developed within the government to address this issue, I'm not sure that that's the total answer. Because we know uh, a government bureaucracy, which will be created to coordinate messaging, <clears throat> will not be nimble, and it cannot be nimble and quick. And quick. I think it has a role. Um, at a conference last uh, week that actually Michael's organization uh, sponsored, uh, one of the people was from the IT world in Ukraine. And he mentioned that they had some volunteers who are working on this issue. I mean, most of it is happening in social media. So I would like to challenge the Ukrainians who have proven themselves in this IT world, being cutting edge, to take this initiative and somehow create a program that will uh, bring in the volunteers that they have uh, and to be strategic about it. Uh, it has to be fought on many, many fronts. Uh, each of us with our respective organizations can play a role, but I think it requires also a massive uh, approach, particularly in the social media world. John? I'll pass. Okay. We have about 10 minutes left, which might give us time for two questions and, and short responses. So, sir, in the back. Bob McConnell, um, I'd like to make a comment following up on something Mrs. McConnell just said. Uh, she challenged Ukrainian uh, IT specialists. I'd like to challenge the Ukrainian government. They are incompetent in sending their own message. They're still talking not about a war, Russia's war with Ukraine, but, by an, but they talk about an anti-terrorist operation. It's about time they said what was going on in true terms. Thank you. Uh, another question or comment? Yes, ma'am. Hello, um, my name is Roxelena Winar, and I have been working with um, a nonprofit called Ukraines of Colorado, providing humanitarian assistance to um, victims of the war in eastern Ukraine, and I just recently moved here. 
um, from Colorado, and I just would like to, I'm also an aspiring um, scholar on Ukrainian issues, and um, particularly Holodomor, and I'd like to thank you so much for hosting this panel. It's very important um, for people to realize the importance, and kind of going off of what we've heard today, I would just like for you to please um, speak about what has been done here in the U.S. Um, and also what you think should be done as far as trying to um, get Holdemore on the level of not only recognition as the Holocaust, which Ukraine's also suffered in, um, as well as, of course, Jews, and, but also to, as the Holocaust has been, um, you know, in, in several countries in Europe, I think it's about 13 countries, um, there's been a ban to deny, uh, you know, that you can't deny the Holocaust. And, um, and also with that, the symbolism of Nazism, for example, like the salute um, to Hitler and such, so forth. Um, as we've seen recently, um, the communist symbols of the hammer and sickle have been particularly popular with Hollywood. Um, I believe it was Kim Kardashian who recently appeared wearing a sweatshirt wearing the um, hammer and sickle. And for many people that was very offensive. Um, so I was just wondering, um, since Holdemore is an epitome of the great evil of communism that has happened um, particularly in Ukraine um, <coughs> along with several other um, genocides and famines that happened in Ukraine that aren't as well um, researched as the Holodomor, for example. But I would like to know um, what you think can be done and what has been done to try and um, put Holodomor on that level to you know, ban the denial of it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, anyone would like to take that, a short response, I'll start. a quick response? Um, very nice question. Thank you very much. Um, uh, frankly speaking, a lot has been done. Um, it may not be evident as much, but I, I, I think this is where the rest of us, in terms of American society, um, we have to roll up our shirt sleeves and, and, and get to work a little bit. I'll give you some examples of what has happened and obviously what is, is, is still necessary. Um, worldwide, there are only 14 countries that have acknowledged the Holodomor as a genocide. So that's one of the first things that needs to be done. It need, this needs to be brought more to the world's attention. Uh, there are many Ukrainian diasporas throughout various parts of, of, of the world. It is our role as a diaspora to, to bring forth um, um, this notion of recognizing the Holodomor as a genocide. So I think that, that that remains first and foremost. And while the United States did have a commission on the Ukraine famine, as it was called back in 1988, um, or 86, excuse me, um, and it did mention that we, in terms of this commission, find that it was a genocide, that Stalin committed genocide um, in 1932-33. The U.S. government as a whole has not recognized it as of yet. However, interestingly enough, if you go to the legislation which enacted the um, construction and the, and the building of the memorial, uh, Holodomor Memorial in Washington, D.C., it actually does state that it is Holodomor slash Ukrainian famine slash genocide of 1932-33. So certain things have been done. <clears throat> Regarding um, curriculum, again, what, what um, Naftali had mentioned earlier, it's all about education. And this is not a centralized, we in the United States are not a centralized educational system. So this all begins from local grassroots and, and, and goes further up. So it is necessary for you to get out there 
as much as possible within your school boards, within your respective states to get this done. The state of Illinois is mandatory that you um, have to learn about the whole model in social studies classes. Um, Massachusetts is fighting that battle right now. New York State, as a matter of fact, in the Regents exam two years ago, actually had a question on European history about whole model. And you get to choose, do you answer that or do you answer another um, aspect about World War II? Um, another question regarding World War II. So there are certain things that are, um, that are out there. I can give you a great example, Senator Schumer, when he appears at our yearly commemorations of Holodomor at St. Patrick's Cathedral, he always mentions that this is the Ukrainian Holocaust. So the more that this information gets out there, the more that it, 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 it basically <clears throat> and uh, gives us, enriches us, and gives us the fortitude to move forward. Okay. Thank you, please. I, I, want, I want to get everyone a chance oh, to have you. closing oh, remarks, I'll, too. I'll we have quick. a few minutes left. Um, I'll, I'll give you two concrete examples about education sure, sure, sure. programs that we're doing. Um, we have a high school program, mm -hmm. uh, as in Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation, that brings high school teachers into Washington, DC, trains them on curricula, and then sends them back out to their high schools to talk to their students. We also do college programs where we bring speakers like us and um, films to campus. And film is the most important component, I think. The film, the trailer that we just saw. The words, Holodomor was a genocide, are big, uh, intimidating words that not everybody can easily access. But if you make a film about how Russian troops coming over the border to confiscate grain during a time of a famine kept the handsome protagonist from his beautiful fiance, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> yes, I would underscore that because uh, you can't get everybody to you know read a history book or sit down for a, a really history lesson, but begin to spoon feed and I think promoting, I haven't seen the film, but I think what's been said about it, I think it's an excellent way to introduce this topic and to maybe get people interested. So I would just urge, uh, once it's out of the theaters, to maybe use it uh, in various settings, in schools or organizations. Uh, again, to, it's sort of the soft touch. And since people have been promoting books, I'm gonna promote one. Uh, it's fiction, it's called Child 44. It's a murder mystery. It's a page, you can't put it down. Uh, it is uh, spelled, and it is set at the time of the Hall of the Mor. So again, it's an easy way to uh, introduce. Don't, the film is not nearly as good as the book, uh, but it's an easy way, again, to get people to uh, be introduced to the topic in, in, in different ways. Um, I'm gonna make a comment to Mr. McConnell's comment. Uh, <laughs> There's been frustration uh, because a lot of the information <coughs> coming from the Ukrainian government, most of the time it's been in Ukrainian. But I have noted in the last several weeks that there have been some very interesting infographics because I think that's what's needed. Um, you know, whether you're trying to go to you know, Congress or whatever, everybody wants it on a, you know, one page. They're not going to read you know, multiple reports. So we can spoon feed this various kinds of um, information, I think uh, that would be helpful. So hopefully there'll be more coming out uh, from the uh, Ukrainian government. John, we have about two minutes if you want to give any thoughts, a response, uh, I, I, or closing I, I think the, the last question points to a problem, which again is there's no clear understanding in society as a whole of the horrors of the communist project. Mm -hmm. For that reason, you see symbols, you see communist symbols, you see the continuing 
glorification of that thug Che Guevara, um, you need to change the culture in order for people to understand that this use of symbols from this absolutely historically unprecedented bloody project is unacceptable. Um, we are at a pre-consciousness phase right now. Um, I try to be a realist, so I can't say I see us reaching this position as a society in the near or even the midterm. But I think over time it can happen. And I'm hoping that this film, Bitter Harvest, will be an initial breakthrough. Thank you. And, and with that, I just want to thank the panelists. If you could join me with a round of applause. And thank you for coming today. I believe there's a, a reception after this. And thank you very much. Thank you. And go see the movie, Bitter Harvest, please.